Welcome to my den. You may remember from a few weeks back, I had Pete Atherton on the show and we talked about the AEC industry, that's architects, engineers, and construction from the perspective of a consultant who works with a lot of different clients. But I thought today as a kind of part two to the episode with, with Pete, we could bring on the president of a firm who is currently active. And so I reached out to my friend, Tim Schroeder, who is the president of Newman Monson Architects. They're based out of Iowa. Tim and I met a couple of years back when I worked in AEC for a firm. And specifically we met because Tim's approach to client and employee experience was one of the most progressive I had seen in the industry. And so I was excited to bring Tim on to have this authentic dialogue about some of the challenges and opportunities that he's facing in his world, and also how they might clash or align with the native digital perspective. And as you'll hear on this show today, that's all about everything from remote work to employee succession, and even to video content that Newman Monson is employing. I think what you'll see is that Tim, unlike many other leaders in AEC that I came across as a native digital, is extremely open to new ideas. And I learned a lot from him about how the industry functions as well during this conversation. Before we dive in, I do want to remind you that this show is brought to you by Dun Dun Dun, the new brand of Analog Academy. If you're a leader or business owner and want to crack the code on recruiting employees under age 30, be sure to sign up for our free masterclass held on the second and fourth Thursday of every month. We're going to give you tactical strategies to make you a top native digital employer. You can register at hannahgwilliams.com forward slash get that shit. And now hang on to your seats or your time machines if you're cool like that. And join me in my living room with the amazing Tim Schroeder. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a Native Digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today. Hi, Tim. It's so good to see you again. Hi, Hannah. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, I am so looking forward to this conversation after, you know, after Pete Atherton came um, on the show and we just opened up a whole new world, literally, of talking about professional services and architecture and design. I was like, oh, gosh, I've got to get Tim on the show to <laughs> open our minds even further to what it's like to run uh, an architecture and design firm. So I'm super excited, but wait, tell me what, what's on your wall behind you? Well, those are our awards from the American Institute of Architects. Uh, we have many of them that we've acquired over, especially over the last decade. So we've had quite a run uh, since we've 
really jumped into a decade of organizational change that started in 2012. And, and the first focus of that was design excellence to really, that was the start of our purpose, moving us toward a purpose-driven organization. And, um, and we've had lots of good results of that effort. So that purpose-driven effort started in 2012, but like how long have mm-hmm. you, how long have you owned Newman Monson? Well, Newman Munson was founded in 1977 by four individuals. I've been around since I was a summer intern in 1991, uh, then came here after graduation in 1994, have been here ever since, and became part of the ownership team in 2000, and uh, have just kind of grown up here and and it, we had a lot of growth in the early 2000s and that you know the the team that came in mainly millennials the team that came in at that point really teed us up for the change that needed to happen as we grew um they brought with them certainly a different mindset um a little bit different than the gen z and uh, native digital population but but that helped us begin changing. And ever since then, we've set a mindset of continuous evolution, continuous improvement. So as the, the next generation came on board, we certainly engage those thoughts and keep evolving to, to be a good organization for them or the best we can. We can always do better, of course. It's amazing. Well, and we're going to get into that, but let's leave all the business business mm-hmm. things aside right now because I just want to I just want to get to know you better. But sure. I have to ask. Um, so every on Tuesday of every week, I host this uh, pre-show. So I do it on Instagram Live, and I do it with a bunch of Gen Zers because mm-hmm. they don't get to come on the show. <laughs> I, I know some amazing Gen Zers who are, you know, own their own companies and all these things, but they ask me all the time, can I please, you know, come on your podcast? And I, I'm like, no, like the purpose of this show is for me to talk with people like you who are from a different perspective and generation and doing other sorts of amazing things and have this cross-generational dialogue. Well, anyway, the happy medium was... I get questions from my Gen Z audience to ask you so that I'm not the only one asking questions. So you, you might be prepared. You never know. They might ask you a question like, you know, do you, do you think side parts are cool? (laughs) Like side hair parts? Have you heard this whole debate? (laughs) No, that that hasn't been on my radar. Okay. Fair, (laughs) fair enough. It's usually not on many people's radar who are actually doing something important. (laughs) Um, but so one of the questions from my Gen Z audience is a little more intelligent than that, but they wanted me to ask you, how has being an architect changed your view or your perception of the world? Hmm. Well, I, I think you have a very concrete vision of how you can impact the world and being an architect and, uh, um, and that, you know, as you grow up through the profession, you may go to school wanting to be the hero, wanting to be the one that comes up with all the ideas that save the world. Uh, but then I think as one enters the profession and, and grows up a little bit, they, they realize, you know, we're really serving our clients 
and that change has to come through the client. So, uh, you know, there's a, they, we call it educating the clients. We call it, um, you know, just being the client's guide and helping them realize that there's more opportunity sometimes than what their vision for change is. But I mean, it, I guess ultimately the realization is that you have to do whatever you do through the client and the better equipped we are to, you know, really tap into their vision and maximize it is the opportunity for impact that we can add to, you know, the vision they bring to the table. Because oftentimes clients might just want the building they saw on the way to the meeting with us. Um, so there's, you know, I guess I'm getting a little off topic, but uh, there's the initial thought of what you can accomplish, but then you realize there's a lot more to it and a lot more meaning and depth because it all comes through the people you interact with, not only your team, but the, you know, most importantly, the client. Well, and I know you've been involved in a, a lot of fascinating projects over over the many years. So I want to ask you about that. But I, I thought that this question from, from my Gen Z audience mm -hmm. was interesting because I think one of the things they were curious about is <clears throat> like once you're a designer at heart or an architect at heart and you start doing, you know, work on these big projects and you're working with clients all the time and serving them, is there anything about the way your mind works that that makes you see things like, I don't know, parenting or education or grocery shopping <laughs> different mm -hmm. because you have a you have a certain worldview that you're like seeing seeing the world through? Well, it's always a mindset of problem solving in everything you do and being way overly analytic of everything you do and um, <laughs> You know, so there's all that baggage that goes with it. But if I look back, he brought up children, and I think I learned more that I applied to architecture and the team here by having children and learning from that process as opposed to the other way around. Um, now you have me curious. Tell me more. Well, it just just raising a child, and I think just the the you know the act of becoming a parent is one where you start to see selflessness uh, because you then everything is focused on that other other being that you brought into the world so you know it it takes you out of yourself to some degree and um i think that was a big part in in me growing as a leader here realizing it wasn't all about me <laughs> and what I could accomplish. It was about what the, the team could accomplish. And I, I credit that to being a parent. I completely hear you. And I'm, I'm not a parent yet, but I think I've shared with you, I'm the oldest of seven kids oh, and yeah. it is, so I'm, there's three girls, then a boy, and then three more girls in my mm -hmm. family. And I can, completely see and you know in the way my parents handled them that i could imagine you know when i was little everything was about me in fact i hadn't thought about this in quite some time but when i was a i guess i was 18 months when my next sister was born 
And mm-hmm. apparently I got so jealous of her. You know, the world used to revolve all around me and now it wasn't revolving around me. I got so jealous. I used to bite her. And <laughs> what's hilarious about this is that I'm actually the calmer one of the two of us. So my sister and I, you know, we grew up doing everything together. Mm-hmm. And I am typically the one everyone sees as level-headed and cool and calm. And then my sister was, her nickname was Hornet when she was younger <laughs> because she would just, you know, blow up. I mean, you probably, you tell me you have a, one of your kids is like this, where they're just feisty and well, they're pretty low key, but they're totally different people. That's for sure. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. So we, my sister and I were complete polar opposites. But anyway, mm-hmm. I thought that was, you know, hilarious. It's, it's just the illustration. It doesn't matter how calm or collected of a human you are. Mm-hmm. As soon as you figure out the world's no longer revolving around you, well, things happen. Certain yeah. aspects of us come out, right? <laughs> yes, that is for sure. But okay, so this is interesting. So you said... Like you see the world through a lens of problem solving, you see it analytically, but then parenting has taught you a lot about what it's like to be a leader. Um, t- tell me more. So your journey into Newman Munson, when you you said you graduated out of college and immediately started at, at Newman Munson. Yes, yes, I started here, and then <laughs> um, a year after graduation, my buddy and roommate from college uh, we got back together because he was having a wedding and so we were talking sharing stories about the firms we worked at and and he convinced me that his firm was really great and I went to work there for like two months before I decided I had it pretty good at Newman Munson after all there was a more nurturing environment so I came back here Actually, so I was gone for two months uh, from Newman Munson in that 28, 30 years of history. Wow. But uh, but it, it, it reminded me that that he tends to exaggerate. But now, <laughs> that, now that was your learning. <laughs> yes, but now he's back. He he came here uh, about seven years later. So he's one of the principals at this firm, uh, Dave Zarodnik. So. We're buddies, old college roommates, and another one of the principals is from my hometown, Muscatine. That's Channing Swanson. So we knew each other since we used to compete in drafting in junior high. Um, and then, you know, so we got a, it's a small world. But. So what is that? What's that like having, so how, okay, first of all, how many principals there are five and okay. it's growing. Uh, we have uh, ownership program that we've just augmented into version 2.0 this year. And, and so we have a team of associate principals that we're, we're establishing a succession process for them to take over in the coming decade and beyond. And we set up a system for the generation after that and after that was a big accomplishment of last year's efforts. But um, so yes, there are five, princi- five. five principles. We're all males. Okay. Uh, there is a little diversity. Khalid Khan comes from the Middle East. Um, but the team of associate principals, there's two females. And so we're 
working that diversity into the, our our system. Wish it would have come sooner. But the you know when I graduated from college, there were for a class of sixty. Maybe we started out at eighty, and by the time we graduated, there were sixty. But there were maybe four females in the whole class. Now it's great. The architecture programs are graduating fifty percent uh, men and fifty percent women. So there's been a big shift that's taken place over the years, and and we wish we we're a little more ahead of the curve, but we're trying to catch up. Sure, sure. Well, and that was what I wanted to ask you: if when you have at least three of the five principals who have known each other, sounds like you guys have known each other for for a long, long, long time, even back to competing in draft competitions. I love that. So mm -hmm. how, how does that work in terms of your, you know, daily interactions with each other? Do you think it's a stronger bond because you have that long history? Or do you think that there's potential blind spots because you do have that long history and don't have as many fresh faces who are in, you know, in leadership roles? No, I think we're we're amazingly different, um, but you know what we have is a different system altogether. Which you know that's part of that evolution of of change that we've we've taken on over the last decade, and that transitioned us from this top down only kind of approach to decision making to a bottom up system where and that has started and to do that basically the leadership has to take their hands off the wheels to some degree be willing to let go of control to some degree and and that that started with the lesson of the first ever firm wide retreat that we had and the, we hired a facilitator and the facilitator wanted to have a group of volunteers organize it. Whereas, you know, we were used to, we made all the decisions as the leaders. And, and so we had a group of volunteers and they just went about making all the decisions. It, they weren't very efficient at it. And we were kind of there holding our breath at that point sure that something was going to go horribly wrong, but <clears throat> I think what, what came about was that they, they surveyed the, the, the staff and got all this information and they set us up for change. Um, and as we went through the coming years, we established uh, a group of a cross section of the team with, without director or principal leadership to look at our quality control we set up a team like that to look at our our design quality, one to look at client experience, and one to look at sustainability. And so those are kind of these self-managed teams that anyone can join right out of school, and thereby they're they're participating in the administrative aspects of what we're doing, improving our product. And it's not just this top-down thing where it's the principles. And so, I mean, there's that kind of diversity in all the, all the thinking that's going on here. Um, is that, that makes sense? 
Absolutely. And thank you for your honesty. I want to ask you a little bit deeper into this because mm -hmm. I speak with so many CEOs, presidents, founders who are in that pivotal moment where they're trying to decide, does my organization decentralize or have that bottom up approach? Or do we continue simply trying to manage you know, expectations from the top. I, in fact, I was working with one client recently who was visibly getting just red in the face, just exhausted by the idea that he had to release control from the corporate perspective and actually mm. give more ownership. And, and the conversation we continued to have was, or at least, you know, the, the things he was sharing with me was, we give them all these trainings. We pay so much money to have all of our leaders go through training, but they still can't think like an owner. Like they're just not getting it. We tell them all these things and they can't, they just won't do it. And so I had to try to help him reframe how he was thinking about top down versus bottom up learning. So tell me like, when you were making that pivotal decision to switch to these self-led teams or even just the decision to have a group of volunteers lead, you know, put together your retreat instead of what was it? Who was doing that formerly? Was it the well, that was the first retreat we ever had that okay. was um, I think we went on a couple vacations and like a two day cruise or something in the past. But yes, we planned all of that. But this was. Uh, the founder, the last of our founders was a decade later, he would retire. So we were thinking we need to figure out our vision for the future uh, beyond that kind of centralized leadership concept. And sure. it became more about purpose. But you mentioned um, thinking like an owner. Mm -hmm. I could expand on that a little bit because one of the <clears throat> when we did have that first retreat, there was just such a gap of mindset and the priorities between uh, members of the staff and the director team, which was four or five people at that point. Um, <clears throat> and that's gone up with retirements and then back down and whatever. But um it's just such a gap there. And one of the things we had was this profit sharing program, which wasn't a profit sharing program. It was a retirement program. And if we hit a, we would just at the end of each year say, okay, we're going to give everybody a 15% on top of everything they earn, give them 15% into their 401k. But it became an entitlement because we just kept giving it and nobody saw that as, I mean, it's an amazing benefit to give an additional 15% with no match, but there, nobody appreciated it. So one of the first things we did to change the mindset was to make it a real profit sharing program and tied it to our actual profit. We report on it every quarter. So everybody starts to see that, you know, there are these huge ups and downs in our earning and our profitability and everybody experiences those. And we all are biting our nails to see whether or not 
<laughs> what the distribution is going to be at the end of the year. So that gets everybody thinking like an owner. But then beyond that, we started um, expanding our ownership program in our, you know, our actual ownership program in 2015. And that's expanded to 20 people. So of our firm of 42, 20 are owners in the organization. And then, as I mentioned earlier, we've, uh, that initially came in, uh, they didn't each own about 1% of the principals owned the rest, but we've just modified that program to give these different paths of ownership within the ownership team, different levels and a cadence of purchasing, depending on which level you're in. And that's all aimed at, at you know, the typical firm, you have a very closely held center of ownership. And if you're not one of the people that make it into that little, little pot, um, you're stuck at a, a glass ceiling. And so we wanted to, we've just kind of trying to be, be innovative and develop something that eliminated any glass ceiling. So everybody's got the opportunity to continuously advance um, in their, their ownership. And, and we, you know, you mentioned pivotal decision earlier. None of this have we had a plan. We've just worked our way through and incrementally uh, just tried to do make the best decisions possible for for the team as we went and and work through it step by step so okay this is this is very interesting to me because i think it translates not just for professional services but could be picked up by other organizations that haven't even thought about not just profit sharing but ownership possibilities in their firm so take me back to before you switched from the 15%, you know, without the match to the profit sharing, take me back to your mindset or whoever was making those decisions. What mental frame of mind or thought process did you have to go through to make that decision to move in this direction for your profit sharing? Well, the, um, there was a the, our founder um, had a different mindset and uh, had grown up through the company and it was how companies were run at the time uh, with just a very centralized decision making structure and and they came to our director meetings with pretty much the 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 decisions all figured out in their own head before the meeting. And so there wasn't much talking at our director's meetings. I mean, even the direct other directors weren't, or principals weren't necessarily getting too engaged. And to clarify, um, just before you explain what, what year was this? This was pre 2012. Okay. So we're, we're looking, you know, 12, 13, 14 years in the past. Yeah. Well, okay a decade ago. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we had the, the retreat and it kind of opened the door to this, 
that we should be thinking differently. We should be treating our employees differently. We didn't know the path forward, but, and in my mind at that point, I was very much burnt out in my profession. I in, in what I was doing, I was, uh, spent a lot of time convincing the, the team members that we had to stay on board because they were very frustrated with the regime and how decisions were made. And, and so, you know, th there was that aspect as well as just being overloaded with work because I was given project after project and I couldn't keep up. And so I was burnt out. And then I was the heir apparent to take over the organization, but the way it was run, it was, you know, uh, the CEO or president felt like they had to do everything and control everything. And that to me on top of being burnt out just seemed like that was a hill I didn't want to climb because that would give no life, no part of my life to my children or my wife or anything outside the office. So, uh, <laughs> I was, had convinced myself that I would leave the firm. Well, I'd already tried to leave the firm. <laughs> your two but, month, uh, your two month excursion? <laughs> no, in 2008. I, okay. I tried again. Um, but, and then I had kind of relented to, you know, that I'll leave in 2019, but in the meantime, you know, there's, it, it, when, when that founder retires, I would just kind of hide behind the curtain and, and do what I have to do, but I, I'll, I'll make it that far was what I was thinking. But, um, <laughs> I'm probably saying way too much, but, um, <clears throat> no, this is good. <laughs> but then uh, we had that retreat and nothing happened. We didn't know how to take action and, uh, we were just at a loss and went back. You know, we were, the leadership team was all focused on the projects and only the projects, not, not the organization and the health of the organization. So there was a, a moment a few months after that retreat where three people were said they were leaving and two of them ended up staying, but the one that left, he came to me and I was trying to do what I always do and convince people to stay because there's some good things about the organization, but, um, he, he just said flat out, you're not capable of change. And that, that was what set a fire in me to actually make a difference. I still had it in my head that maybe I could retire by 2019, but, but it became the, the, the epiphany for me, which I didn't even know it was happening, but it was because at that point I shifted the focus to the team and their success, stopped worrying about my own. Um, and that became the most, I mean, the, the career, it just keeps getting more and more rewarding, but it just shifted the, the reward in me, and, you know, from being burned out to being just totally thrilled every day to come in and help these other people succeed in their careers. 
So what I'm hearing you say is it was like a a two-part change. It was number one, you were just going to leave. You were not, you know, (laughs) you were not a principal at the time. You You were ready to skedaddle if something didn't change from that centralized model. And then two is, you know, you, you got in the headspace where you recognized that was not healthy for, for you and your family. So how much more for the other people in the organization? So it was almost just a complete no brainer from a turnover standpoint, but also from a, from your own health and well-being standpoint. Yeah. Did I hear that correctly? Yeah. And I ended up wanting to stay and I felt committed to all of the people that I had brought on into the organization and convinced to convince them to come here in the first place. So, um, at that point when there was the opportunity for change, I didn't want to, I didn't want to abandon them, I guess. Um, makes complete sense. Oh, so this also brings up. I should also note that I'm not, there's a lots of great, a lot of great people that are here that helped all this change happen. It wasn't just me. Um, I think though, there were a lot of weekends and time that I spent to help make some early wins and just try to tip the balance in the, in the direction of change that, that may have helped in the end, but certainly I'm not, the credit isn't on my shoulders. 100%. 100%. So this brings up an interesting just perspective I wanted to ask you about, especially after my conversation with Pete. One of the things he and I talked about was the study that his firm did in collaboration with another consulting division. Did you see that report that came out on the future of work? And I didn't see the report, but I I remember you guys talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was very, very interesting data, but it aligns very well with a lot of my research around native digitals and this new workforce that's here already Mm -hmm. and for professional services is coming very quickly. And one of the key findings from that report and from my research is that over half of Gen Z or native digitals want to be entrepreneurs slash gig workers slash freelancers. So I wanted to ask you if in the next, say, three to five years, you were suddenly faced, you know, speaking of decentralization, you were suddenly faced with a situation where over half of your employees or over half of your potential employees, say applicants, who you are trying to hire. Um, what if they were gig workers? How would that shift your firm's focus? Yeah. Um, I was just talking about that this morning um, because you know, we have two locations, Iowa city and Des Moines, Des Moines is smaller in Iowa city. We have 30 people and one of the elements we prize is the the culture we have here and through the pandemic it wasn't a matter of people wanting to stay home they were itching to get back here and be part of the team that we have here you know i don't know if it's our drink carts on fridays or what it is but we like being together and when we can 
cut loose and have some fun, it's great. One of the things the pandemic did teach us is that we could in integrate better with our Des Moines um, you know, studio in, in through um, virtual platforms and have vir virtual whiteboards like Mural and Miro and things like that. So that really became evident and it, but it's only, it only really works when you're all on that virtual platform or you're all off of that virtual platform. So what, you know, it, what we miss is the ability to interact as a team around a table and we can do that here in our office. So what I'm getting to is that we prize that and, and we've started, you know, add a lot more flexibility with hours to, to address that idea uh, of the desired flexibility. Uh, but we still promote the idea of being here together and that that's going to be deliver the most collaboration and the most innovation. And it's not necessarily this top-down thing where we're pushing that on people. It, it, it's just a great, we have such an amazing, amazing culture um, and we don't want to lose that. So if we start having one person fully remote working, you know, we have um, a BIM expert that does that and we have a, a accountant that does that part-time. But our production staff is pretty much in the office the whole time. And they may be, maybe a few of them take one day where they work at home or something. But if we start opening the door to 100% at home, and it might be a totally different story if there's a person that's worked here and been part of the culture, and then they move away and work remotely because they know us. But if we have people, we're hiring people that haven't been part of that, and then um, they are then, you know, we're working with them remotely, and then another and another and another, inevitably, that culture d dissolves. So what is the answer? I think we're going to have to cross that bridge in the, in the coming years, or we're going to miss the boat. Um, I know there are companies doing a great job of keeping a culture, maintaining a, a strong culture with that remote presence, but we haven't solved that one yet, Hannah. Um, it's because we have something here we want to protect to some degree. And even in the new hires want to be part of that. They can learn so much more from the conversations going on in the neck at the next desk, desk and all of this. So, I mean, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, first of all, this is exactly why I have conversations like this because, oh my gosh, you are not the only person I speak with is like, oh my gosh, we're, how do we, how do we keep that culture intact or, you know, our mm -hmm. values in place with people scattered, not just across remote workforces in the same city, but what about globally in different time zones? Like yeah. what happens if we hire a designer who lives in South Africa and they're on our team? Like how do we maintain that culture? Um, so I was going to ask you if you wanted the native digital perspective, because <laughs> I'm glad you asked because <laughs> so, okay. So I want to 
ask you for a second. This is mm-hmm. what I was doing in TEDx all day yesterday too. If you were in the mind of a native digital for a second, imagine being, remind me how old your kids are. They're 20, 21. 20 and 21. Okay. So you're inside the head of your 20 year old kid and, and you're looking for your very first job and you've come out of, you know, COVID and you see all these people who are, you know, graduating, maybe they got their associate's degree, they have the opportunity to go intern somewhere. And you have two companies, you have company A and company B. And let's say, you know, you're in a great college, maybe you're just maybe you're doing college online because you're not back in person. Maybe you're going to dance competitions in, mm-hmm. in Orlando, right? Like I know your daughter is. Yeah. So you get the opportunity, you're traveling all the time, you're doing college remotely, and then you get an invitation to two internships. One's at company A, and they have taken, you know, enormous efforts to make sure that they're investing in all the latest technologies to have, you know, a a culture that is as Uh, vibrant as possible, even though it's digital. So you get the opportunity, you could be at your dance competition in Orlando and still getting paid for working 20 hours a week in your internship doing design work on the side. And, you know, you get to interact with people. You even get the opportunity when you're back in, let's say, back in Iowa City, you know, visiting your parents to meet with a principal at the firm while you're there, maybe have lunch, have an intentional conversation and then go travel to, I don't know, San Francisco for a girl's retreat and still be able to work. So you have Mm -hmm. company A and then you have company B and they say, I actually had this happen with a client recently. They say like, okay, we, you know, we need you as an intern. We're going to offer you a position. So there's stability, you know, as soon as you graduate, but you have to be in person three days a week. You know, you have to be, um, you have to be physically here to meet all of our principals. Well, you walk into company B, let's say you, you know, you take a try at this internship, you walk into company B, you get put into a little corner office, a little, you know, cubicle to do your design work. And you hear chattering happening over next, you know, next to you and the other cubicle, you may have a, some interaction with your coworkers over lunch or whatever, maybe, you know, the water cooler, what, whatnot. But ultimately that's only 30 minutes of your day. And all you can think about the whole time you're in that internship is, gosh, I could be sitting in LA right now. I could be having the same intentional interaction over a couple of Zoom meetings as you know I, I had in the office in a cubicle over that lunch break or, or whatnot, but I could be in LA or Orlando or wherever I want instead of here. So from just like a hiring perspective, if you're in that mindset as a native digital, watching all your friends get remote jobs and you've got you don't have that flexibility, are you likely to take a position afterwards, you know, at, at company B? No, oh, I get it. Yeah. Company A is very tempting. Now that that's another thing I was thinking about over the weekend is, you know, there's a digital world, but in our profession, we've got to translate things into an analog world of construction. So, and to do that, 
you've pretty much got to be able to go to the job site and, and that. And, and there's larger architecture firms that specialize in certain areas of practice. Uh, and this, again, is maybe something we'll have to revisit over time. But the, we pride ourselves on developing well-rounded, you know, people that are, I think Pete talked about this a little bit, is when he moved from the larger firm to the smaller firm, he had to know everything. And um, so we pride ourselves on developing those individuals that can address all of that. And there's, you know, there's a certain hands-on element to that that we've got to figure out as we move forward in the digital world too. Um, and just being right there to, for questions, any question that pops up. But I, I get it. I see that it's something on the horizon. We're in a fortunate position where we're one of the most sought after firms as well. So it's not a challenge. We, we don't have people coming to us and saying that this other firm invited us me to do this. They might say that the other firms on the coast and I go, I want to go try that for a while, but they don't, they don't say they're being offered the opportunity to work remotely. Not in, we haven't run into it yet, but I bet it's coming. Sure. A nail on the head. Not, it hasn't come yet. Mm -hmm. That's why, you know, when I do, <clears throat> I've done this research ac across industries, the trend is certainly remote work, gig, you know, gig workers, freelancers. Mm -hmm. That's why it surprised me slightly when Pete's report that was specific to professional services was coming out and showing, I forget the exact number, but it was something like a 30% increase in freelance workers. It's just people leaving their firm saying, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm just going to be a freelance worker and do, you know, work work with one company for a few months, take contract work, work with another firm, almost like the Fiverr version of, you know, basically taking Fiverr and integrating it into professional services. So, yeah. but I do want to highlight something you said, which is right now, not looking 15 years later, but right now, culture and, and client experience, employee experience, all of those things are what make Newman Monson, at least to my knowledge, looking from the outside in, a premier firm to work for because so much of the rest of the industry is still trying to figure out things you guys already figured out. Heck, that's why you're on. That's why that's why I invited you to have this conversation is because I believe in terms of the grand scope of things that you all are one of the most progressive firms in the industry. My concern is when I look at every other industry and say a child's choice about what type of career path they're going to take, I see more and more adolescents and college students choosing paths that have digital components than I do the ones choosing, say, traditional architecture and design pathways. Because let's say, you know, you're a 15 year old and you're deciding what you want to do, what sounds more appealing doing architecture on a, you know, design and architecture for a physical building or designing in the metaverse, mm -hmm. you know, that's the question. So it's, it's almost taking a, 
not just a now examination of life, but a future outlook. Like what happens in 10 years when those kids who are making the career decisions are no longer to the same extent or the same percentage of them looking at traditional design, engineering, architecture jobs, they'd much rather be able to work not just remotely in a remote location, but have the flexibility of their job going anywhere so that they can work in the metaverse, designing buildings, designing games. You know, I, I am starting to see those two industries are starting to compete for talent and brain space and, and trying, you know, trying to get students to funnel into those career paths. What, what seemingly in the past didn't seem like a competitive space now is. So what are like, what are your thoughts on recruiting? Let's say look 10 years out from now, like what needs to shift about the A&E world for, for, for that industry to continue being competitive with, you know, with a child's career choices. I don't know. Yeah, I, but I, we have started conversations here. Uh, at least one individual is bringing up the idea that we should be designing in the metaverse and digital design. Um, and so that is an opportunity. Uh, the construction industry really needs to advance because it, it hasn't really advanced in its practices for well, much at all. Uh, but there are tools that are out there to use um, augmented reality to visualize what are the next steps for the workers, you know, that we build the, the building information model and then it goes into goggles that they wear and it shows them all the steps to take to build it, things like that. So there are advances being made. Um, I, I don't know that if, I don't know that architecture is not as interesting yet. It seems like there's more interest in it uh, just because I think it's something that people can, you know, see the, uh, the outcome of it. But I don't know. I got to catch up to you in that thinking and see where that's going because we want to, if we are ahead of the curve, we want to stay there. hundred <laughs> so. percent. Well, and something I so appreciate about you and leaders like you too, who are willing to say, I don't know yet. Like we're, we're figuring that out day by day because it is something, you know, when I work with companies who are in that stuck mindset, going back to the centralized versus decentralized management, it's like, I know so many leaders who won't even take the opinion of someone who isn't at least 10 or 15 years mm. into their career, but to take this whole centralized, decentralized conversation to another level, I 100% believe that because there's now these two categories of human, you have to start taking advice from people who are not just young in their career, but young just in their age, you know, just people who are living a different lived perspective. Like they, we we're living as people, you know, speaking about myself, but your kids as well with a digital life that is primary and an analog life that is secondary. We literally work, think and play starting from a different 
point of view. It's, it's weird to try to describe that. And I didn't even consciously think about this until a couple years ago, but it's weird to be a native digital and then consciously think for a moment, oh my gosh, I don't know what it's like to see from your perspective. Like, I don't know what it's like to see the world as analog first, because I truly see it as digital first. And to me, everything is a no brainer. Like, uh, I'm trying to even think of an example, but like, People thought that education, that that it was revolutionary when education moved onto Zoom. That was digital, right? That mm-hmm. was totally digital to take a physical classroom onto Zoom. No, it wasn't. Not to a native digital. <laughs> We're thinking, oh my gosh, I, I can now learn a language through Duolingo. And it the software learns my learning patterns, my strengths and my weaknesses and curates my lessons and the content it serves me based on my individual problems that I, you know, the things that I keep messing up on. Mm-hmm. Why doesn't traditional education do that? So th- it's just a different way of thinking. So I, I love speaking with, you know, leaders who are coming from a completely different mindset because it helps me understand what does the world look like from your perspective too, and how can the analog world begin to shift faster into the digital and not just take technology and put it into analog processes, but completely redo the entire process, starting with a digital perspective. So, but it sounds like you've got a a native digital on your team who's already saying metaverse, metaverse. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) How old are they? Well, actually, the person that's bringing that up is a millennial. Okay. So he's, I guess, younger than his age, but... But we on in a, of our staff of 42, we have, depending on the year you cut off, uh, we have 10 people under 30, actually 11 people under 30, and uh, eight people under the age of 28. What's your cutoff for so native digital? So native digital is loosely under 30. Mm-hmm. Gen Z would be ages... Uh, I guess, right, as of this year, ages 10 up to 26. Mm-hmm. So it's, and Gen Z is a, a different, a bit of a different animal too. So you, do you have a few Gen Zers under yes. 26? Okay. And about to have a lot more because we, we need to hire quite a few people. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, and we're in that process right now with career fairs. So uh, we have teams going out to the Midwest colleges and, and then we also have teams within the office doing conducting interviews remotely and, and things like that. So a lot of activity around that right now. How many positions are you trying to hire? Well, we can hire maybe six full-time architectural staff and interior, but, they, but also we build up on summer interns. Uh, so we could add three of them. And then we're looking at some specialty positions we're, for our content marketing push. We're hiring a videographer and, and then we're looking at maybe a, a modeling expert or, or a visualization expert that could get into augmented reality or VR and, um, and then somebody for modeling energy 
um, performance uh, so we can push that. that further. So when you say content strategy, is the what's the purpose of the videos? Well, we've been making a big push to, you know, put ourselves out into the, the you know, online, uh, the metaverse, I guess, and and just write articles to educate clients. There's a book called They Ask, You Answer, and it's, it's, it's all just, you know, writing our authentic opinion on what we think about this topic and, and what a client can do to address it. Ultimately, it's an opportunity for the, the clients to see us for who we are authentically and, and um, align values and, and then to come to us with their, their mind maybe 80% of the way made up that they want to hire us and, and bring new people, new ideal clients into our sales funnel. But so it beyond is, is it development. Yes. Okay. So and beyond writing, then we're going to add video. So, you know, it's much more engaging and, and we can have our bios. So, I mean, we've got a great team, so we might as well put them on video and and make us that much more of an attractive firm to work with so can i give you a native digital uh, tip that's gonna yes. make you stand out from Please literally do. every competitor what's that okay here here's here's the amazing tip i don't know why more people aren't doing this when you're creating video content don't make it corporate make mm -hmm. it as absolutely authentic raw as possible. Heck, when you hire a videographer, have him shoot the videos or at least half the videos on, on a cell phone. Yeah. Like make it raw, take out the corporate lingo, make it fun. And I'm telling you, I'm working with one of the largest banks in the world. That one shift has made them so much more attractive to native digitals. Hmm. That it, it not just not just employees but clients, just because more and more native digitals are making decisions, buying decisions in professional services as well. Like these vid the videos that are raw and real and authentic instead of these polished, you know, ten thousand dollar takes that are super over edited and super, you know, they've got drone shots and all of that. Those are great pieces to have, mm -hmm. but. The companies, especially in professional services, are missing a massive opportunity. I, I have yet to see an architecture firm that is creating, ha, has done basically the same thing as the types of videos you see on TikTok, for example, that are super engaging and fun and, and light. I've yet to see a firm do that and build a content brand that is bigger than the current work they do. Um, and do it effectively. Like you guys could be a literal first first mover in that space. Yeah, we, we haven't seen a lot of it either. So we're looking forward to that. And it and we, it is, the intent is for it all to be raw, including the awesome. writing. Is that it's, it's not trying to sell us. It's just trying to put our authentic self out there. And the clients who dig it will be attracted to us. And if they don't dig it, that's fine. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. That mm -hmm. is so important. I mean, oh my gosh. It's um 
Yeah. And like tip two would be have a Gen Zer preview it. Cause I mean, mm -hmm. it's, they'll be able to tell you, oh my gosh, this is this It was trying to be super authentic and fun and it ended up just coming out as rigid and awkward or <laughs> add Gen yeah. Z lingo to it. Um, but I can't send me the, I would love to see that when, when you're done too, cause it could be a shining example of what you should be doing. If you're, you know, if you're trying to create content in a, in a space that's typically very corporate or very, you know, um, traditional. Yeah, I will. Sounds awesome. good. Awesome. Well, I know we didn't even get to talk about, um, the Stanley Center or or the Just, but I'm so glad the conversation went this direction because I tell you, Tim, like the number of leaders I speak with who are still having this this problem with thinking outside of a centralized box, like thinking outside the box of how do we empower our people, how do we help them think like owners. I oh my gosh, these yeah, these are such good tips and. Um, Shifting to a native digital world is not necessarily easy, but um, I, I don't know if you got a chance to listen to the episode with um, David Capron. He was the former VP of uh, Marriott in their global design studios. Mm -hmm. And he introduced me to this term that I had not heard before. And it's the term cottywomple. Have you ever heard of this word? No, and I haven't heard that one yet. No, so. I, I, I'm an avid reader and I had never heard of this term. So the definition of it is to move in a purposeful direction toward a vague destination. <laughs> and I love that because cottywampling, it's a verb, is literally what every business owner is called to do right now when it comes to the native digital world. Because who knows where that tech, where that mindset is going to take anybody but we have to move purposefully like you guys are doing with the content in an unknown direction or a vague destination, but we have to do it intentionally. So I, I love talking to you because I feel like, I mean, I know that's what you guys are doing at Newman Munson, even if it's not a clear direction. Yeah, not everybody's okay all the time with the vague part of that. <laughs> no, they're not. Yeah. So, <laughs> but I, I think... I, as you get comfortable with the unknown, I think I think it it helps out a lot. That you can just roll with it, and as long as you set your intentions, set your heart in the right direction, I think the the path reveals itself. Thanks for listening to the Native Digital Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining Native Digitals, you can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>